0: Welcome to the XCGS Cart-by-Cart Cart Podcast, the first and only podcast covering Atari's last answer to the 8-big gaming system. In episode 15, we take to the skies during World War II and battle the Axis powers to become the Ace of Aces. Then, the Federation needs you once again to take out the invading Zylon Empire in Star Raiders 2. Now, here are your hosts,
1: David and Michael. Hello, everybody. We've been away for a while, but now we're back and we have some news today. So let's take a look at the general news. Unless we receive a mountain of angry electronic messages in regards to this decision, we think this is the last review that we will contain a where to buy section. We all know where to buy our physical retro games, and although having a snapshot in time as to what these games cost at the time of the review, I don't see it having that much value in the future, nor for future generations listening to the show. That's all I got, Michael. What's up with you?
0: Oh, yeah. So, uh, well, let's talk about what I got for Christmas since it was so long ago. Um, I got a few retro gifts. I got an uh, 810 3D 3D printed case for my S-Drive Max. Uh, It's just a case, no LEDs or switches or anything, so I got to install those. But uh, we'll see how that turns out, and I'll post pictures online when uh, I get that finished. I also picked up an embroidered cover for my 800XL, and locally... Somebody was getting rid of the an old 1200XL uh, 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 and a Percom Drive uh, 1025 printer, 1030 modem, and a bunch of other things. This guy was the original owner and didn't know the actually uh, the uh, status of the thing, but it had been it's like sitting in his closet for forever. It had a ton of dust on it. It has a little bit of yellowing, so I plugged it in, and there was some... Glitchiness with the cartridge, so I cleaned that up, and the keyboard wasn't working, so I ended up fixing that. I watched a few videos online how to fix that, but I figured out an easier way to take the Mylar off because the Mylar gets dirty. And you got to remove it; well, it's stuck to the circuit board, and you can it can easily rip. So I found a way to take that thing off quick and easy, no problems. And I'll uh, I'm going to finish up a video on it and I'll post that online so we can all uh, learn from it and not to ruin our old 1200 XLs. Um. Let's see what else? Oh, my wife picked up a couple of gaming themed wall art from Hobby Lobby. I don't have much wall here, but uh, maybe when I move into a new home, I'll, I'll, I can hang these things up. But uh, a little got a little Pac Man uh, arcade uh, metal sign, and then a little uh, it's got a little toy- tar joystick on it. it says uh, it says a little message on it about gaming or something. I can't remember off the top of my head what it said, but kind of nice for uh, for the decor. So that's that's it with me.
1: What about you, David? Well, you know, Michael, since uh, you gave your update, uh, it reminded me that it's been a while since we recorded last, so I think from the XCGS podcast, uh, we want to th- wish everybody a Happy New Year! Yeah. <laughs> three months later.
0: Yeah. Well, hopefully uh, that won't be the case going forward, but we've said that before, so... <laughs>
1: yeah, so don't, don't, uh, no guarantees. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, I recently picked up a QuadTari four-player adapter for my Atari VCS, and the cool thing about this is, um, you know, you'll be able to play four-player games. And also, there are games like, for example, Champ Games Wizard of War, where, you know, before in a regular Atari, you only have two um, DB9 inputs. So, if you want to have a two-player game, you don't have anywhere to, to plug in the Atari box. So, this way now, you'll be able to still be able to play with two players and have the Atari box plugged in, so you can get all the cool... Um, vocals and what's also cool is now you have the capability of having two joysticks plugged in along with the Atari Vox so you can get all the cool speech from Wizard of War and also maybe more of an impulse buy but I picked up a collector's copy of Circus Convoy from Audacity Games yes people The former guys in Activision have started up a brand new company, and they're making games for a system that came out in
0: 1977. Oh, my
1: gosh. So I had to pick one up just to support them. So you got it already then? No, I got the... So what happens is if you buy the collector's edition, uh, they email you a link to get the um, electronic copy Mm -hmm. to play on your multi-cart. And they will then mail to you the physical copy. So I haven't got the physical copy yet, but I do have the ROM. Sweet.
0: When's that supposed to come to you? Do you know? Mm, Maybe
1: two, three weeks. Oh, that's not too bad. And they promise people to work. uh, On the website, it does say, you know, we're working as fast as we can to ship these things out. (laughs) So I'm not sure exactly how many people are working at Audacity Games, but uh, I'm not really worried. I got the electronic copy already. So I'll be able to play that in the meantime. But I just felt I had to support that upstart company.
0: Definitely, definitely. You know, So this Quad Atari or Quatari thing you've got, it's sh- most of the games to the Atari 2600, I assume that's the one you're talking about because we've got the new VCS that now Atari gets to confuse us on. But yes. um, none of the games other than paddle games would allow for four players. I assume there's probably some... Um, some homebrews that allow for four Oh, points? yes.
1: So, so basically, this is more or less uh, going to be utilized for a lot of new homebrews coming out in the future. Okay. From Champ Games and others. Sweet. So, and there are already a certain amount of games that are Qatari um, uh, playable, mm-hmm. but uh, there are going to be a lot more in the future. So
0: Neat. That's that's pretty cool. I'm glad to see. It's that really happen.
1: good when you can't have anybody over your house anyway.
0: I was going to say, do you know four people?
1: <laughs> you know, to tell you the truth, I don't think I've had four friends over at one time in years. Yeah. <laughs> that's Which very sad.
0: Needs to be now. You need networking uh, capabilities for the Atari Twenty Six Hundred. Yeah, we can play need... online. <laughs> Definitely. Well, uh, we got our first game. That is uh, Ace of Aces. It was published by Atari and licensed by. Artec Digital Productions in 1986. In 1987, Accolade published it. And then we have the Atari version in 1988. The model number is RX8099. It's a simulation air game. Uh, Developers were uh, Kevin P. Pickle. Pickle! And I'm going to pronounce his name wrong, but it's Amori Wong and they both did the development and graphics, and Tommy Lee, who also did the graphics for distinctive software. number of players is one, and the controller is joystick and keyboard. So let's read what's on the back of the box. Ace of Aces puts you in the cockpit of a Mosquito, the Maverick RAF fighter-bomber from World War II. It's white-knuckle aerial combat simulation, combined with exhilaration of flight, with the gut-wrenching pressure of enemy confrontation. During World War II... Mosquitoes downed 659 enemy aircraft and 500 V-1 buzz bomb. Your only allies are your wits, your weapons, and your radar. Are you equal to the challenge? No. no. Keep going. <laughs> I was going to say. Down the Nazi bombers, sink the U-boats, outrun the V-1 buzz bombs, and stop the enemy trains to release the POWs. Should you fly through a storm or around it? Navigate carefully. Consult your intelligence reports and maps to make a decision. Choose your weapons and fuel wisely. Once you're on a mission, there is no going back. Select one mission or any combination. If you complete all four successfully and make it back alive, you'll become the most distinguished flight veteran of World War II, the ace of aces.
1: Let's talk about playing the game, the controls. Unlike a lot of simulators, in this one, you use the joystick to select all your aircraft controls from different airplane views you have the option of using both the joystick or the keyboard the keyboard being a bit simpler when using the joystick you'll double tap the fire button and then move the joystick in the appropriate direction cockpit keyboard press number one or on the joystick double tap fire press joystick forward engine room port left wing keyboard press two joystick double tap fire Press the joystick to the left. Engine room, starboard, on the right side. I shouldn't say that. If you don't know what starboard is, then look it up. <laughs> okay. Engine room, starboard. Keyboard, press key three, double tap fire, press joystick right. Navigation map, on the keyboard, press key four. On the joystick, double tap fire, and press the joystick back. The Bombay. On the keyboard, press key five on the joystick, double tap fire, release the handle. As you can probably tell, going full joystick will take you some practice. Now the cockpit, forward-facing view. This, of course, is the forward-facing view and where you'll spend the most of your time looking at. Here you'll find yourself skimming above the clouds, while right in the center of your windscreen is your gun sights. These will appear black until the enemy is in firing range. At that point, they will turn red, giving you the sign to open fire. Your joystick will be used to fly the aircraft, and I'm sure we've all flown one, so I won't waste your time telling you what they do. If you have chosen to load your aircraft with cannon ammo, this will be your initial ordinance. Although it would be nice to be able to switch between this and rockets, this option is only available on the Bombardier view. We will discuss this later. Other than the view from the windscreen, you'll have access to many control displays. Compass. Your initial heading is south. The dark line indicates the correct heading of the next target, or when your mission is completed, the way home. Airspeed. This is shown in miles per hour. Artificial horizon. This displays your aircraft's alignment to the horizon. Black is descending. Gray is climbing. Altimeter. This dial reads your altitude in thousands of feet relative to the fixed horizon. Intercom. This appears as the plane's silhouette in the lower right. This monitors trouble spots in your aircraft. When a section of your plane lights up, move to that view and take care of the problem. When the center of the plane lights up, your ground target is in sight. Yoke. This appears at the bottom of your screen and represents the movement initiated by your joystick. Radar. This tells you the enemy's distance relative to your position. Enemy altitude. Just left of your radar gauge, this display monitors the altitude of the oncoming enemy aircraft relative to your altitude. Let's talk about the engine room, the engineer's view. Now, the name suggests that these controls exist in a separate room, but in the game, in reality, these controls are only available to the pilot. You see, the Mosquito wasn't a large aircraft, and it only held a pilot and a navigator who sat in tandem. These men were strapped in and did not move around. In the game, you view these controls by looking at either left or the right. To change any of these controls, move the joystick so that the diamond is over the control you want to adjust and hold the fire button while pulling up or pushing down your joystick to adjust the control settings. Throttle. This increases or decreases your engine speed. In the real Mosquito, these controls are only on the left side of the pilot's seat. But in this game, this control appears on either side and controls that specific engine. Booster. Pitch. This control adjusts the pitch of your propeller blades. If the throttle is the accelerator, the booster is the gearing. Again, same layout as the throttle. Note: Try to keep the throttle and the boost at the same position to avoid engine operational issues. Fire extinguisher. If you find your engine on fire, use this to extinguish the flames. Of course, this engine will be out of service as well. If both engines fail, you'll need to use the next control to maintain an even course. Trim. This setting allows to adjust the rudder's control surfaces so the aircraft maintains the set altitude without any control input. Landing gear. Since you won't have to land in this game, these are generally in the up position and only need to be lowered when you want to create drag, which will help reduce your speed quickly, which comes in handy sometimes when evading fighters. Fuel. Indicates how much petrol you have left. When a tank is empty, move to the Bombay view and drop that tank. We'll talk about this view and how to do this later on. Flaps. These are high-lift devices used to reduce the stalling speed of an aircraft wing. These can also increase drag and possibly cause damage to your aircraft if they're deployed at high speeds. Navigator's view. In this view, you can study your map as you progress through the missions as well as your position in relation to your target. Bombardier's view. In this game, you'll actually see several things. First, it looks very similar as to your loadout screen, showing your content munitions count. This is also where you can select between guns and rockets. You can also see the amount of fuel in your tanks, and this screen allows you to drop them, decreasing your aircraft's weight and allowing you to increase speed. There is also a switch to open and close your bomb doors. From this view, you can accurately drop bombs on the intended targets using your bomb sights, moving your joystick to line up with your bomb sights and press the fire button and drop your bombs.
0: Uh, Let's talk about the gameplay. So for the title screen, uh, when you start the game, you'll be shown a still image of a formation of six mosquitoes flying over clouds. Across the clouds displayed, Accolade presents Ace of Aces. Below that is the copyright, publisher, and licensor information provided previously. But with the addition of the trademark provided by Nova Game Design Incorporated, I'll talk about them later. This title screen lacks any music, but the reason for this might be answered later on in this review. You can push the fire button to progress the next screen, or just wait 10 seconds. At the mission option screen, you'll be brought into the mission briefing room. Pilots look upon their superior as he uses a pointer to focus everyone's attention on the impending mission. On the chalkboard are two options for you to choose, practice and missions. Since there is no difficulty option, let's discuss the two categories. Practice. This mode gives you the chance to get used to your aircraft and the targets you will be engaging, which is I highly recommend. You'll be offered three different practice missions. Number one, dogfight. This will allow you to go nose-to-nose with the German ME-109s. Number two is train, as in the choo-choo train. Practice bombing the enemy rail system. And three, U-boats. Drop bombs on these targets before they submerge. In this mode, your Mosquito is already loaded uh, with the necessary ammunition and fuel. Even in practice mode, if your plane is damaged or low on fuel, you can return to your base to resupply, which in the case of practice mode, just go into another practice. (laughs) Now let's talk about a real mission. This is where your training will make a difference. There are four mission types available here. Your V-1 rockets. Not only will you have these Devils to deal with, but they're escorted by ME-109 fighters. Bombers, take out the JU-88 twin-engine multi-role combat aircraft and ME-109s. Train, uh, they're shipping your boys off to the camps, but with some well-placed bombs, you can stop this, but watch out for those enemy air support. And U-boats, defend the Allied convoy from enemy submarines. There's also a demo mode. Um, If you don't press anything for 30 seconds, the game will go into this mode. Here, the screen will cycle through many of the game screens while giving you an idea of the gameplay. This demo will end in the pilot getting shot down. Accepting a mission. While being briefed for a mission, you will be given the following information. Targets. The first target listed will be your primary target, such as a train, while your secondary target will possibly be air support for the aircraft type listed. You got weather. You will be given a weather condition, direction, and wind speed. Weapons. This lists all available ordnance that will be available to you when you load your aircraft and your orders. This list is for your primary targets, what not to destroy, as well as secondary targets are. If you choose to accept the option, you will be shown the map. The map displays the English Channel. On the left side is a portion of Great Britain with the markers showing London, which is your allied base and is displayed in pink. On the other side of the channel is the European coast. You will see the following countries, France with the marker for Paris, the Netherlands for the marker for Amsterdam, and Germany with markers for Berlin and Munich. There's also some other markers on the map, but uh, no labels next to them. But if I had to guess what they were, I'd say there was Antwerp, Dusseldorf, Dartford, Birmingham, and Southampton. The map isn't that accurate, and some of those cities don't match up with the most populated at the time. But again, best guess. All other markers are displayed in black. Country borders are in white, rivers in blue, and rail lines in pink. The map also displays bombers, submarines, trains, V 1s, storm clouds, and your mosquito, which looks a bit like a Klingon bird of prey. Burrell class, I think. Kapla! That's for you, Star Trek fans out there. <laughs> You're instructed to study the map carefully, but you're able to view the map at any time during the mission, so just give it a light perusing. Next, we'll be taking the loadout screen. The screen allows you to load your aircraft with ordnance you will need to complete your mission successfully. Move your joystick over the items, uh, plus or minus sign, and select how much you would like to add to your aircraft. Your options are your cannon shells and rockets for air targets and bombs for ground targets. You can also include fuel tanks for longer-range missions but your intelligence report will already have suggested your recommended loadout for your aircraft. So let's talk about the gameplay as it has begun. As soon as you start the mission, a launch screen will display five black and white photos of the mission launch events as the siren sounds. When the mission begins, if you choose a practice bombing run, you'll be placed lined up in front of and over your target, and your viewport will be filled entirely with all gray due to the low altitude. If you choose a dogfight practice or real mission... You will see yourself flying high over the clouds. Okay, what happens when you dogfight? I wouldn't say that this is dogfighting in the traditional sense. If the aircraft is right in front of you, all you need to do is line up the aircraft in your sights until you can place a burst of fire onto him. If he gets close enough, he will unload upon your aircraft, damaging your aircraft and possibly killing the pilot. Keep an eye out on your radar. It's possible the enemy is outside your field of view. Turn your aircraft towards him and take him out, or he'll take you out. You have to destroy any enemy air, aircraft you come in contact with. For bombing runs, bombing of ships and trains is pretty much the same action, except bombing trains has a difficult, different difficulty than ships. For the trains, drop bombs on everything but the cars with the little red crosses on top of them. For the U-boats, they will immediately be alerted to your presence and will attempt to dive and will not resurface, so you better get them before they get away. Each u boat uh, during your run will become uh, consecutively smaller. To have a successful bombing run, you will need to be lined up with your target, decrease your altitude to a 1,000 feet or less, and set airspeed to 100 miles per hour. In all combat situations, when your crosshairs turn red, your enemy is in range, so commence firing. On the status screen... At any time during the game, you can press the space bar to pause your game. This has the uh, added bonus of displaying your status screen. On this screen, it displays a number of each enemy target you've destroyed, as well as the bonus scored from returning from a mission successfully, and a total upscore. If your plane has received damage, the damage area will be listed on the right side of the screen. At the end of the mission, this screen will be presented. If you successfully made it back to base, the added message, Congratulations on Returning Alive, will appear at the bottom of the screen, while as a version of the trio section Land of Hope and Glory of March Number 1 by Sir Edward Elgar will be playing. Or most of you all know it, it's the Graduation March, if you've ever graduated. It's also called Pulp and Circumstance. A whole lot of names to this one song. Uh, if you perish, the message will present you with your cause of death and the reason. For example, the pilot was shot. And I think it's a I think it's taps played. I'm not sure. I tried to figure out what it was, but it wasn't a British death song and it wasn't quite taps, but it's something like that.
1: No, I think it was taps because I heard it a lot.
0: Okay. Good. I'm glad it was taps because it didn't sound like Taps.
1: <laughs> well, let's just let's just say it was an I think it's an eight bit version of Taps. Okay. That's that's I think yeah. that's it's um you know, it's that when the when you have the the soldier when the soldier goes down and you got the trumpet i think we need to play the
0: song on here so people can phone in yes and say. all
1: apologies yeah. to all fighting <laughs> men in the field yes All right, let's talk about scoring. Usually simulators don't calculate score since your victories are based on completing objectives, but Ace of Aces does have a scoring system. Destroying some targets with a specific weapon can earn you double points. For example, a V1, you get 150 points using cannons. You get 300 points using rockets. Destroying a U-boat, you get 250 points. Destroying a bomber by cannons, is 100 points. Using rockets is 200 points. Destroying a train engine is 500 points. Destroying a train car is 200 points. Both engine and the car are grouped under the train in the status screen. The POW car. If you hit them, that's minus 200 points. Don't kill your boys before they get home. Completing a mission. Returning safely, 2000 points. In the status screen, this is just listed as home. Unused bombs, you get 50 points per bomb. Unused rockets, 50 points per rocket. The disc version of this game only gives you 30 points for unused rockets. Unused cannon shells, 10 points per shell. Fuel tanks intact, you get 10 points per each. Now, strategy. The manual suggests a few things to be successful in your mission. Number one, don't put David at the controls. (laughs) Okay check your map frequently and watch your targets movements you will want to predict where they'll be when you get to them or before they get to their targets also avoid storms these can damage your aircraft of course the most direct route is the best so try to stick as close as you can to the heading indicated it's the black line set on your compass
0: all right here's one of my favorite parts uh, history and trivia let's t- talk a little bit about that um the manual really doesn't talk much about the information about your aircraft. So, so, the aircraft you're flying is a DH 98 Mosquito, and it was developed by De Havilland and introduced in the Second World War in, on November 15, 1941. It's a twin engine, shoulder wing, multi role combat aircraft. It has a crew of two a pilot and a navigator who sat by side by side. This means you'll be doing the work of two people in this game. De Havilland had a reputation for innovative high speed aircraft, and the Mosquito was no exception with two Rolls-Royce 114A Merlin V-12 piston engines, which produced 1,710 horsepower, which could achieve a maximum speed of 415 miles per hour. It had a maximum cruising speed of 375 miles per hour at 37,000 feet. For comparison, the German BF 109 fighter could hit 370 miles per hour at 19,685 feet. Although the 109 did have a service ceiling of 39,000 feet, uh, speed would drop off to around 294 miles per hour, so that makes the mosquito quite fast. The maximum range of the mosquito was uh, almost 2,000 miles. Uh, maximum loaded weight was 25,200 pounds, and it could carry a 4,000-pound bomb load. Its frame was constructed mostly of wood, uh, leading to getting the nickname Wooden Wonder or Mossy. Since the the back-of-the-box claims you'll become the most distinguished flight veteran of World War II, I wanted to find out who actually earned that honor during the war. The highest-scoring pilot of World War II was German pilot Heinrich Bubi Hartmann, with 352 kills. 345 of them were Soviet and seven Americans. The highest-scoring Allied pilot was Soviet Ivan Korsadub, with 62 kills, a few of those being Allied aircraft.
1: Believe it or not
0: top RAF pilot was James Edgar "Johnny" Johnson with 38 kills.
1: I like how there's no
0: Americans here. No, <laughs> no. Nah, nah. Well, think about it. I mean, most of the most of the war was in Europe.
1: I know, I know, I know, I know. I, know. I like to, I got to love the Russians.
0: You know, I take out a few good guys. It's it's a funny story actually that he basically they didn't um I don't think they signal to him or something, and okay. I think they, no, though no, they shot at him, and so basically they shot at him first, and so he shot back. So,
1: oh, okay, okay. Yeah,
0: don't shoot shoot on a Soviet.
1: Not <laughs> <yet> Soviet. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk about the legacy of this game. This game was released for several systems on cart, tape, and disc, on the Atari seventy eight hundred, on the Commodore sixty four, MS DOS by Accolade back in nineteen eighty seven. On the Amstrad CPC and MSX in 1996, and the Master System in 1990 by U.S. Gold. And on the ZX Spectrum by TierTex Design Studios in 1986. Now, if you remember, we mentioned the title screen contained a trademark by Nova Game Design, Inc. Strategy board game players might recognize this company's name since they were the creators of the Ace of Aces board game, as well as the much well-known Axis and Allies.
0: I remember seeing access analysis at game stores everywhere. I know. It's huge.
1: Where to buy. Video 61 has it for $49.95. The website says limit one, so supplies must be low. Best Electronics has it for thirty nine ninety five new in box or $20 cartridge only. BNC Computer Visions via eBay has it for $29.99 plus $6 shipping. Also on eBay... We've seen $27.99 for cart and manual, no box, but free shipping. Okay, now, time for the reviews. What did you think about this game, Michael? Well,
0: I love simulators, and although I haven't played a lot of them in a while, other than this game, um, I have enjoyed uh, them since the 8 days, and into the late 90s when I purchased a Thrustmaster F-16 FLCS and a th- throttle and rudder control system, so it was the most realistic HOTAS system of the time. Uh, Now the level of simulation, these early systems a mixed bag and uh, something like, you know, Microprose's Hellcat Ace, I would call something like a simple simulator where you got something like their F-16, sorry, F-15 Strike Eagle starts to move the altimeter needle towards a more realistic simulator experience. Let's see where this one levels out for me. Graphics, uh, I give it an 8 out of 10. The maps are simple, but clearly define your targets and the overhead map light in the image is a nice little touch. The loadout screen provides you with a well laced layout of your weapons. It has an easy-to-use interface. While in flight, the layer of clouds render pretty slowly, but I think this is the first sim on the system to provide a, a cloud layer like this. So I thought you know, that was pretty impressive. Uh, my only issue with it is that the sky is always filled with them. Uh, I think if the devs would have put areas where the skies were clear and a pilot would encounter intermittent cloud banks. That'd be nice. Um, I mean, when you're on a bombing run, everything is just shades of gray. Uh, if the altimeter is destroyed, you would have, you likely be able to, um, not be able to, you don't see anything. So you can't tell how far you are from the ground where if say for instance, they had, uh, breaks in the clouds or something, you can kind of judge how close you were and still continue to bomb. Uh, the cockpit is very detailed and it's impressive by providing three screens of controls. I also like seeing your virtual control yoke mimic of the real world joystick movements. For music and sound, I give it a six. I wish they had put some music in the title screen, but I don't think it would have mattered much since all the music seems to use either one or maybe sometimes two voices out of the four. It's not very complex. And for the sound effects... Um, it's what you expect from a flight simulator. I mean, you hear the engine noises and stuff, and the just you know bomb sounds. It's pretty basic, but um, I don't I don't see how the developers could really come up with more um, variations on that. Uh, for gameplay, I give it a seven. One of my major complaints about the, this game is the heavy dependency on the use of the joystick to adjust controls. I found the responsiveness of the joystick lacking, and the fidelity sometimes oversensitive. For example, sometimes when moving my bomb sights up while hitting the fire button, it executed the action to show the cockpit view. So, you know, I get a little more of a zealous with the, the button pushing and boom, I was in the cockpit. And I wish I, you know, this was something I could either control uh, exclusively by the keyboard or, um, you know, to shut off that feature from um, the the game so I don't mistakenly do this. Because as soon as you do that run, you hit the the, the wrong screen you have to get, figure out how to get back and by that time you've missed most of the train or whatever you're trying to bomb so sort of ruined it um i'd also like to say that um, i didn't like having to go to the bomb ad- view to switch my guns and rockets it seems to me like i could just do this from a key press again the enemy aircraft movements are really jumpy i mean they're all over the place i didn't know i was they didn't flow like an airplane they were more like a, a, a ufo so if you play something like, like I mentioned before, you know, Hellcag Ace, the aircraft in that were very smooth and they felt like you were actually pursuing an aircraft. I didn't get that with this game. Um, because your gunfire comes out and bursts, it's really hard to line up a, your shots. You don't get like a trace of bullets. That would have been nice. Um, so it kind of made it difficult to shoot down the planes. And the cloud effects are very cool. But they refresh every second, which makes gives you the impression that the plane is flying really slow. And that's not the case uh, for the Mosquito. It's a very fast and nimble aircraft. Being able to move the bomb sights up and down allowed for better precision, which came in hand sometimes when you drop a single bomb and it wouldn't take out the target. Presentation, I give it a 7. I actually like the title screen. I know it's just a still image and doesn't really make use of the Atari's capabilities, but uh, the composition is nice. Uh, fun fact, the title screen is actually the mission load screen from the disc version of the game. The menu uh, selection screen is also clever, making you feel like you're part of a mission briefing. I also like the photographs detailing the process of your aircraft launching or the process of launching your aircraft to start a mission. And then there's your typical XE uh, GS fare, but since the disc version of the game wasn't much better, I can't, can't really do much of a comparison like I used to do, so... So I guess there wasn't any place to go but up in that case. Although, you know, both manuals essentially contain the same information, I'd say the disc version was a little more polished. But anyway, overall score, I give it a 7. I know I seem to bag on this game, and I might have given this a 6.5. We had scored it that way. The developers really aimed high for this one, but I think the 8-bit system just wasn't up to the challenge. But since there are so few aircraft simulators for the Atari, especially ones that have this many features, I don't think this is one for someone to overlook. But I do think that there are better simulator games out there for the Atari. Ah, so what
1: about you, David? What do you think of the game? Well, here's my thoughts, Michael. For graphics, I give it a 7 out of 10. I'd like to give it a little bit more, but the limited color palette with so much gray kind of brings my score down. However, there's lots to see here from various gauges. I like the sky with the parallax scrolling. That's really nice, especially with the clouds. Now, with the enemy planes, as you get closer to the plane, it's still only the black silhouette. Well, I think on the C64 version, you actually start to see some plane details and different perspectives of the enemy plane that you're trying to shoot. Uh, Adequate graphics for the trains and the boats. uh, Left and right views of your plane with nice prop animation are nice and uh, the map and bomber bay screens are not bad too. Now for sound and music, I give it a six out of 10. Where's the intro tune? The C64 and the Atari XL disc version had it. Now you do get the end of game tune. There's the engine hum, sirens, bullets, and missiles, but nothing pushing the good old pokey. Adequate, but not outstanding. Gameplay, I give it a seven out of 10. And this is due to the controls for me. Overly ambitious use of the one button joystick. I found myself many times inadvertently changing views when the enemy was right in my crosshairs. Sometimes I felt the controls were too sensitive. Many times I just found myself tapping the joystick in the direction I wanted to go to avoid oversteer. Good mission type and varieties. You can choose your own mission by mixing and matching game scenarios. Presentation, I give it a six out of 10. It has a decent intro screen, and it has a demo. I also like how the superior uh, has his arm and pointer moving, depending on what option you select. I enjoyed the photo intro for each mission, but it's always the same, and it gets old fast. Thankfully, you can skip it with the press of a fire button. When it comes to the box, it's regular budget XCGS packaging. Blue box, with a top view of the Mosquito plane, you'll be flying. The back of the box has a few in-game screenshots, budget manual as per usual. What's my overall score? My overall score is 6.5 out of 10, but I'm going to round it up to 7 out of 10. Could have had a better score, but way too many times when I had the enemy within my sights only to be whisked away to another screen. And by the time I changed my view back, my bogey was no longer in my crosshairs. External reviews, Atari Mania voters gave this 6.8 out of 10 with 45 votes.
0: Well, let's talk about our second uh, game that is going to be Star Raiders 2. It was published by Atari in 1987, but it was released on disc for the XL line in 1985. The model number is RX8078. It's considered a shoot-em-up 3D. Uh, developers were Gary Stark... Bruce Roman and Robert Vieira, who did sound. Number of players is one, and it's a joystick and keyboard controlled game. Let's read the back of the box. Choot. The evil mongrel Xylon. <laughs> that's not very nice. Xylon Master. I know.
1: It's not bad enough. He's evil. He's got to be a mongrel, mongrel too.
0: <laughs> plans to destroy the At- Atarian Federation Silos 4 star system. He commands the awesome. Wonder if he, he's his own PR guy. Xylon Master Force. Supported by Super Xylon Attack Base. He has set his sights on the planet Terrace, and who knows from there. Time is of the essence. Your mission is to pilot the hottest fighter in the galaxy, the Liberty Star, and to destroy the entire Xylon Master Force. Avail yourself of three onboard weapon systems pulse lasers, ion cannons, and service starbursts. Warp between two systems, protecting friendly Federation cities and dropping starbursts on Xylon attack bases. Yet for all its power, even the Liberty Star has limits, so you'll have to wipe out all the Xylon attack bases. They're stationed on planets within the Xylon stronghold. If you fail to annihilate the bases, Xylon slaves will build fully armed replacement squadrons as fast as you can destroy them. Chute plans to reconquer the Silos Force star system. He'll destroy all Federation cities on planet Arcarum, Sideris, and Terris, and its moon Imbri. Should Chute and the Xylon Master Force succeed, surely the Federation will be lost.
1: Okay, let's talk about playing the game. You got the title screen. You'll be presented with the view of your ship's battle window from low orbit over the beautiful Earth like planet named Terris. Hovering just above the planet is the title, Star Raiders II, Roman numeral, copyright Atari Corp, 1985. Below your viewport are many impressive controls to your spacecraft, which pulsate and transition to different images. Just above your viewport, you'll see the current difficulty, which is set to the easiest setting of one. By hitting the select button, you'll be able to choose up to three skill levels. If you're playing skill level one, the attacking Xylon squadrons move at a slow pace when moving into your Homestar system. You also have three space stations for refueling and repairs. If you're playing on skill level two, the Xylon squadrons move at a faster pace when moving into your Homestar system. You'll also only be given two space stations. If you fail to destroy their attack bases, new squadrons will launch more quickly. And lastly, if you play on level three, Xylon squadrons streak into your home star system. Now you have only one space station. Xylon attack base is now working overtime, launching wave after wave of squadrons. And you may face as many as 30 fighters and destroyers on one planet. For this review, I played on level one. On the left is your current score and on your right is the high score. Since we're just starting out, both of these values are set to zero as you decide on which level to play a short but epic tune will play while you prepare your battle for your star system unfortunately no demo seems to be available so the music just loops indefinitely as soon as you hit the fire button or the start key you're thrust into battle over the planet now let's talk about the views immediately you'll find that you're being assaulted by two waves of xylon fighters before you take on the enemy press the p key to pause your game. You'll notice a lot going on here, but don't worry. I'll explain it to you as if you were being taught by a gung-ho iguana. That's the spirit. Top of the screen. Left is your current score. Center is your message window. If your game is paused, it will display game paused. You can receive a total of 24 different messages. Here are some that are concerning and usually require you to seek immediate repairs. Pulse lasers, ion cannons, or SSB damage. If you receive this message, one of these weapons is inoperable. Shield damage. One or more of your 17 shields has been damaged, causing the Xylon fighters to increase their attack on your ship. Engines damage. This will cause reduced control over your ship's movement. Scanner damage. Your tactical scanner will show a jittering sporadic display. Subspace radio damage. When inoperable, this will result in two issues. You will miss valuable messages and damage reports in your message window. In your systems chart, you won't be able to determine the position of the Cylon Squadron. Right side is the current high score, the viewport. This is where you shoot stuff. In the center of the screen is a pulse laser cannon sights. Pressing your fire button will concentrate your lasers to this location. Moving your joystick left or right will allow you to slide your craft along the atmosphere in the direction while pushing forward increases your speed and pushing backwards decreases it. The ship's control panel, the left side. On the left, you'll see three lights in a vertical row defined as your weapon's indicator and displays which weapon you currently have selected. Two of these can be manually selected by pressing the W key. These are pulse laser cannons, your star fire, when enabled, A bracketed sight will appear in the center of your screen. And surface starbursts, ACA SSBs. When this is enabled, an X will appear on the surface of the planet. The third weapon is the ion cannon. Will be automatically switched when you're firing on destroyers and command ships. Directly above that is the energy gauge, which is represented by a horizontal bar. To the exact right is your surface starburst magazine, which is indicated by two illuminated columns. Right next to that are two displays representing the ship's reactor schematic and subspace radio monitor. To the right of that is the pulse laser cannon temperature bar. As you fire your lasers, the temperature levels increase. If it gets too hot, your lasers will misfire. In the center, here you'll see your tactical scanner. This shows two modes. Target mode shows the location of the attacking enemy Starcraft and attack bases. Weapon system mode displays your weapons, shields, and engine systems. Blinking lights indicate damages. Hitting the T key switches between these modes. Hitting the S key will raise or lower your shields. In this view, shields will appear as a row of dotted lines surrounding your ship. On the right side, this is mostly displays for style and not substance. Here you'll see the master computer display, library computer monitor, incoming communications monitor, a subspace radio monitor. Now hit the P key again to resume gameplay. After removing all the Xylon ships out of the planet terrorist skies, it's time for you to take the battle elsewhere. The system chart, press the space bar to bring up the system chart. Here you'll be shown a map of the solar system that you currently occupy, either being your home celos IV, or the home system of the enemy, the Proxion star system. To navigate your ship around the map, move your cursor to a navigable object. Let's talk about these objects in each solar system. The CELOS-4 star system is described as a type G6 class star, a yellow dwarf, and has three planets orbiting it. Starting from the star, these are Cyridus, which is described as an arid desert with 10 small adobe villages. Adobe. Adobe. (laughs) Terrace. This is a temperate paradise with 10 exotic megacities and lush secret valleys. Imbri. This is the only moon of Terrace and contains nine high-tech civilian centers which are built on barren terrain. Arcanum. This is a glacial giant with 13 glistening cities of ice. The Proxion star system is described as a spectral type F5, a yellow-white dwarf, and is considered an inhospitable star system by the manual, but this appears not to be true since the binary star is orbited by three populated planets. These are Gaon, a steamy jungle-covered ball spurting 14 attack-based sweatshops. Steamy. Xylon, a dry, savanna like home planet of the Xylog Master Force, occupying 15 bases, and Murkoth, a gaseous giant with 11 floating attack bases. This system is currently ruled by the revenge-ridden Chut. Changing the game difficulty does not change the number of cities and bases. When these objects are selected with your cursor, your readout box will become populated with information about the object. For the planets and the moons, you'll know the name, environment, mass, radius, current number of cities, current number of enemy ships in orbit. For stars and solar systems, you get the name, the count, and the type, G8 or F5. Enemy ships and space stations, you get the description of what it is. While viewing the CELOS 4 system, the Proxion star system will appear in the upper left of the chart and while viewing the Proxion star system, the CELOS 4 star system will appear in the lower right. At the top is displayed some info about the system as well as how many cities currently still exist. The red dots on the map represent space stations. You'll want to travel to these when you need to replenish your fuel or repair your damaged systems. The manual states that if the space station is flashing, a Xylon squadron is in the vicinity or it's under severe attack. To warp to any location, move your cursor over the object. When selected, a dotted circle will surround it. Press fire and warp to the target.
0: Well, let's talk about the gameplay. Now that we got a good understanding of our screens, it's time to get into the fight. After I'm pausing the game, the assault by the fighters will continue. Quickly press the S button to bring up your shields. Move your joystick to bring the waves of enemies into your gun sight. When you've lined them up, bring them down by pressing the fire button. This squadron contains only fighters. If they had contained a destroyer, they would have been in the process of destroying this planet's cities with their microwave beam. Each moment wasted would result in another city lost. Although not a problem now, Since invading forces can make their way to where your cities are located while you're preoccupied, it's important to pay attention to those warning alerts and messages you get. If you see cities destroyed, it might be worth breaking off your current attack to protect the planet that is currently being besieged. Press the space bar to bring up your system chart. Unless you're in need of repair, you can choose to warp to the invading forces within your solar system or go on the offensive and try to take out some of the enemy bases in their own solar system. My suggestion is that before you bring the war to the enemy's home front, you take care of your own infestation first. Move your cursor to the squadron that poses the most threat at the time and warp to their location. Okay, we're going to engage the enemy squadrons. The first defense of the squadron will be their fighters. As soon as they have been dispatched, your weapon will automatically switch to the ion cannons, which are used to take out larger destroyers and command ships. Using your tactical scanner, move your ships so they can engage these crafts. Keep an eye on your energy level gauge and message window. If your energy gets too low or a damage report is displayed, an alarm will sound and you should quickly make your way to the nearest space station to refuel and repair. When you feel like you have the enemy forces under control, let's take the fight to them, before you do, make sure your ship is repaired and refueled at the nearest starbase. When the starbase comes into view, your power levels will start to rise until they're full. But you can warp away at any time. In this case, while you're filling up, we're going to go back to the system chart. We're going to move your cursor over to the Procyon star system. As soon as the refilling sound completes, we push the fire button to warp to this star system. Remember, there is no way to repair your ship while you're in the enemy territory and it will take a significant amount of fuel to warp back to your friendly territory. Also, keep in mind that when you warp back, you're in orbit around the planet Archeum. This means you'll have to warp to the closest space station, which takes even more of your limited fuel supply. But there is good news. There is an experimental untested feature called Direct Star Recharge, which allows you to recharge your fuel supply at any star, but if you hang around for too long, you'll melt your hull, killing you instantly and ending your game. So be ready to jump to your star map and immediately select any object to warp away to. When we arrive, we find ourselves in an orbit around Morkoth and immediately attacked by fighters. We will ignore them and instead switch to surface starburst, which will place an X on the surface of the planet. We want to keep an eye on the tactical scanner, which tells us the location of the bases on the surface. Maneuver your ship to place the crosshairs over the target and press the fire button. Two arcing balls will leave your ship and destroy the base. If you're skilled enough one could make one orbit around the planet picking off every base. If you can't do this chances are the fighters constantly attacking your ship will eventually damage one or more of your vital systems so the more time you spend over the planet the more chance you'll see a system failure causing you to abort the mission. We should also check on our own solar system so once again It's time to bring up our system chart and select our own star system located in the lower right. We repeat the process until all of the enemy bases and squadrons are destroyed, or we are. Either way, you are presented with a screen with a message congratulating you or announcing your death. Also displayed is the number of targets you have destroyed and your promotion level.
1: So let's talk about promotional levels. No matter how well you think you did, the Federation has guidelines. With a score of 0 to 9,999, you're an ensign. Score of 10,000 to 19,999, a lieutenant. 20,000 to 39,999, lieutenant commander. 40,000 to 69,999, commander. 70,000 to 119,999, captain. 120,000 to 179,999, a commodore. 180,000 to 239,999 an admiral, and 240,000 and above a fleet admiral. If you die, no matter what your score, you'll be either a garbage scout captain or a galactic cook. Scoring. Xylon fighters are worth 100 points. These are taken out by hitting them with one shot, but as their ship burns, it will continue to fire upon your ship. Destroyers are worth 500 points. There are three different versions of this ship, and each takes a different amount of shots to bring down their shadow shields and take them out. Blue takes two shots, green takes three shots, and orange and red take four shots. Destroyers have two weapons. The one they attack you with is the Xythium Spiral Beam. The other is just called the Microwave Emitter and is used to vaporize surface cities. Command ships are worth 5,000 points. You'll need to hit this ship's more powerful version of the Zithium Spiral Beam Emitter, which is located dead center of the ship. This version requires you to charge up some time, so try to hit it with one of your shots before it turns white and it fires on you. Make sure to avoid it or you'll take significant damage. I noticed I only got about two shots on this guy before he hightailed it out of there, but he also disappeared from the map. So I guess you can consider this a bonus score opportunity. Bonuses. You will also receive bonus scores for each city saved. The score depends on the level of difficulty you're playing. On level one, you get 2,000 points per city saved. On level two, you get 4,000 points per city saved. Level three, you get 8,000 points per city saved. Now let's talk about strategy. The manual gives us a few strategic tips. Protect your planets first unless a space station is under attack. The good news is that if it's attacking a space station, they will not attack a planet. The bad news is if you lose a space station, you can't repair your ship. I assume this means if you lose your space station on level three, you can't repair your ship anymore. While warping, you can execute your next command. It will be executed as soon as you come out of warp. You can save energy by turning off your shields while warping. Now here's some additional tips. If fighters pull away from your reticle, go to the opposite direction. You'll find that they'll change direction and allow you to get a shot off on them instead of trying to chase them. When attacking destroyers or command ships, I find if you bring the ship into your sights from the corners, you'll have a much better chance of landing a shot.
0: Let's talk about some history and trivia. Originally, Star Raiders 2 was supposed to be a tie-in for the 1984 sci-fi movie, The Last Starfighter. But before that, it was supposed to be a game called Orbiter. Some of the differences between Star Raiders 2 and The Last Starfighter are The Last Starfighter shows your gun star on the launch platform with mountains in the background as your objective scrolls across the top of the screen. This is actually the same objective that Centauri's voiceover says in the arcade game featured in the movie. Eventually your ship launches into space. Last Starfighter has the concept of the Frontier, which in the movie was a large-scale defense grid. In the game, when the Frontier is being attacked, you can warp to that location on your map where you will find a command ship cutting a hole in the grid. Dispatch it with your ion cannons. There is also no star bases to power up and repair your ships, so your only method is direct star recharge. This happens at about the speed of your refuel repair process at the Starbase like in Star Raiders 2. Not to go too far into The Last Starfighter, but I think it's worth mentioning that Atari was working on a coin-operated version of this game, which, like the game in the movie, had shaded polygons. The game's main processor was the ubiquitous Motorola 68000. Unfortunately, the estimated cost to manufacture each game was around $10,000. A price tag Atari higher-ups deemed too expensive for arcade owners to pony up. So this 75% completed game was canceled. But a studio called Rogue Synapse has created a faithful remake of The Last Starfighter's laser-blasting action. And best of all, you can download it for free. Since your ship is called the Liberty Star, I want to see if it was named after another famous ship. There were a few ships that went by this name, but the one that stood out was the ship owned by NASA and operated by the United Space Alliance, used to recover the space shuttle's solid rocket boosters. A very short amount of the gameplay was featured in one of Atari's XEGS ads, but wasn't mentioned by name. The arcade game for the last Starfighter movie was also used in the 1986 movie The Boy Who Could Fly, which featured Fred Savage. Fred's character was actually playing the game on the Atari 2600. Oh, movie magic! Also, while listening to the main theme of *The Last Starfighter*, I noticed similarities between the main theme of Rima Williams' *The Adventure Begins*, and guess what? Both were composed by Craig Safin. Take a listen. I'll play *The Last Starfighter* first, and Rima Williams second. talk about the legacy. Star Raiders 2 only appeared on three other systems, the Anstrad CPC, Commodore 64, and the ZX Spectrum. In the original Star Raiders, you're part of the Atarian Starship Fleet, aka the Star Raiders, and a member of the Atarian Federation. A treaty between the Federation and the Xylon Empire has broken. The Xylons operate three types of craft, fighters, cruisers, and battle stars. In 2015, Kevin Savitz, one of the hosts of the Antic Podcast, was contacted by former Atari programmer Eric Wilmunder, who notified him of his work on a different successor to the game. The playable but unfinished prototype has been made available as well as a seven-page manual, which we'll provide a link to it in our show notes. The game is very reminiscent of the original Star Raiders game, but with some enhancements some aspects such as the shooting seem borrowed from other games such as the arcade version of star wars still as a prototype this shows great promise you can listen to the interview with eric on antic interview episode 104. in that interview eric has said the game was close to being finished but there was still parts that needed polish like the enemy ai so i've been hesitant to release it since it might be judged as finished work I'd hate to wait 30 years to release a game just to get a bad review. Well, we'll put your fears at rest, Eric, because we only review games that are completely finished. That's when we tear them apart with critical scrutiny.
1: <laughs> okay, where to buy? Video 61 has the cart for 1995. Best Electronics has the disc version for 2995. Bravo Sierra computer, you can get the cart for $40 uh, USD new or you can get the disc version for 30 USD new as well. BNC Computer Visions on eBay, you can get the disc for $29.95. Other sellers on eBay, you've got $49.99 plus $8 shipping for a cart in box. Uh, not new, but in good condition. Uh, we saw $65.36 plus $24.08 shipping. That was a cart-in-the-box, but condition is fair. And the disc version seems to be cheaper option for those also come in boxes. Now, Michael, let's go on to your review. What, what did you rate this game?
0: Well, actually, I actually had both these games back in the day, and if memory serves me, I mostly played the last Starfighter version. Um, in this game, though, I give it a 10 out of for graphics. I think this is a very visually satisfying game. With a colorful surface planets, the fighters do that smooth alien roll and um, the the detailed solar system maps. um, The game really has some top-notch graphics work done on it. Speaking of those fighters, how about those flames that come off them when they're they're burning up? It's just beautiful. Um, And the explosions are the best. Um, There were times... Where the destroyers would exhibit this delayed multi-explosion that reminded me of like explosions in the old-time animes, like Star Blazers, you know, where the ship would get hit and there'd be that momentary pause and then a little splurt of fire come out for about a second, and then the thing would just erupt in explosion. It was just brilliant. Um, I wouldn't say I like the hyperspace look as much as the original Star Raiders, but it's it's no slouch. I would also like to see a lot on the right-hand side of the console. There's got that little eye candy. It really doesn't do anything. I think that would have been put to better use with actually displaying your, um, damage out, you know, display instead of having to go to a separate screen. It could have, you could have just glanced down and seeing what condition your ship was in. Um, so that was kind of wasted space, but it, it did look nice. Far as uh, sound and music. I gave it eight. The inter music is well done and uses more than one note. Um, it's a little short, so it gets a little repetitive if you leave the game uh, stuck on that screen, that main screen there. Uh, still, the sound effects are unique uh, for the most part. I would like to have heard specific audio tones for different situations where uh, it uh, some, uh, some alert needed my attention. It was the same Alert And sometimes uh, alerts would come one after another. And by the time I was able to look up from the action, basically the alert went away. So if I had heard a tone that was unique, I could say, oh, that means my weapons are damaged or my my you know, shields are, are failing or something like that. So, you know, different tones would have been nice. As far as the gameplay, I also gave it an 8. This game definitely gives you a challenge and is an exercise in, in, in time and, and resource management. You can get so focused on destroying the enemy that you forget that you're running out of fuel. Additionally, the game instills a good offense defense mechanism uh, where you have to decide when it's the best time to take on uh, either role. So sometimes you need to warp to the other solar system. Sometimes you got to stay home and protect your planets. With the original Star Raiders, you could uh, adeptly avoid the enemy fire, uh, but in Star Raiders 2, it's unavoidable. I'm basically just going to light you up constantly. So in, in this case, you got to destroy the enemy as fast as possible before they deplete your ships, uh, shields, and do damage to it. And you'll be doing this a lot. Essentially, you'll be um, you'll be flying and getting repaired constantly, way more than in the original game. Because um, I mean, when I played the original Star Raiders, I hit the starbase maybe once. And in this version, it's it's a constant thing. I, I go through at least one one and a half battles, and I got to go get. Um, um, i got to go over to the uh, the space station to get filled up. I mean, I'm, I should be something of a, a frequent uh, visitor, and they should throw me a free fuzzy dice after a while. It's been my experience that the missions can be quite long, so it's not much of a casual sit-down game. Still, more bang for your buck, and I played on the lowest skill level, so that tells me there's lots of potential to go for uh, higher challenges, and that would keep you entertained for many months. Another small complaint, um, I received... The message, Allied City destroyed several times, but when I went to go to the map, I didn't see any ships near my planets, or when I selected the planet, it didn't say that there were any ships in orbit. So I was a little confused as to where those ships were destroying my planets. But uh, maybe it's a mistake on my part, I just didn't notice something. Uh, For presentation, I give it a 7. The cover is exactly like the original Star Raider's. Um, game. It's just cropped. And I love the original Star Wars cover. It's so much so that when we had a art fair, I basically copied it for that um, event. But I mean, that's great for a 13-year-old kid, but sort of lazy for a company that is producing a brand new game. They should have came up with something new. Um, the back of the box does offer two screenshots of the game, which definitely would have enticed anyone looking to buy the game back in the day. I'd say the best part of the presentation is probably the title screen. It's still pretty static, but, um, uh, you know, there's some movement. But, I mean, you know, when you compare it to the last Starfighter version, that one kind of wins out. We're not really comparing it, but since we got two slightly different versions, it would have been nice if they just kept that feature into this version of the game. But overall, I give it a strong 8. Um, this is definitely one that um, you should have in your collection. It's It's worth having there and playing often.
1: What about you, David? Well, I also owned the original XCGS version, uh, Complete. It was one of the first games I bought when I actually bought a motherboard replacement for my XCGS system that was dead. So uh, I got my copy from BNC Computer Visions. Now, for graphics, I give it a 9. There, Yes, there's still some gray, but it's interspersed with lots of color. Nice intro screen, nice visual warp and laser blaster effects very nice map screen colorful explosions cool melting effect as your ship stays too close to the sun for too long Sound and music i gave it a seven this time we have an intro music and the sound effects are clearly sound way nicer than those of aces of aces nice uh sounds with the warp and laser blast effects gameplay i gave it a seven nice fluid gameplay thankfully now we use the keyboard to offload those extra commands easy to navigate map screen updates are easy and clear auto docking with the star base but too many recycled enemies the same enemy just different colors but pluses it has dogfights and bomber elements in it as well presentation i gave it a seven a nice colorful game Love the multiple display screens that seem to provide you with information such as various ship types, cities, and explosions. It does not have a demo, but it's got a really nice intro tune. Nice illustration cover art, screenshots on the back of the box look good and colorful. Budget manual is per usual. So in total, it's an overall score of seven and a half out of 10, but I'm bumping it up to eight. So 8 out of 10, and that's coming from a lieutenant of a garbage scow. But it's the nicest garbage scow in the fleet. Now let's mention some external reviews. Computer Gaming World, September-October issue, 1986, on page 35, by Greg Williams. In 1986, standards on a scale of 0 to 10. If Greg gave the original Star Raiders a 6 for graphics and an 8.5 for game design, he'd give Star Raiders 2 an eight and a half for graphics and a four and a half for game design. He'd say it's visually breathtaking, but gets repetitive after a while. While the original Star Raiders required some decision-making, Star Raiders 2 has as much strategy as Missile Command. It's like a bike with training wheels, where you think you're doing something dangerous, but you're not examples although your energy drains it doesn't drain significantly even when warping your gun temperature does increase while firing but there's no risk of damage if they overheat he says that these would have been touches that would have added to the richness of the game but at 1995 or $46.54 in 2019 the game was worth the price
0: So we actually have some user feedback. Actually, this one was from about a year ago when we did our last episode. And because we're running over time, we decided to postpone it till this episode. So hopefully Eugenio is still listening and was able to hear his user feedback. Anyway, Eugenio writes, I hope all is well. I heard you loud and clear about the lack of feedback on the prior episode. So I thought I'd rectify that. Number one, dark chambers. Count me in as one of those folks who likes this game. I first played this on the 7800 and did not know then that it predated Gauntlet. I discovered that years later, but it did matter. I did not stop liking this title on the system. Now let's move forward in time and I finally get the Atari XEGS. Guess what is one of the titles that I decided to try out on that system. Did you say Dark Chambers? Yep. I decided to give the game a spin to compare it to ex- my experiences on the 7800. The gameplay is the same in both versions, but there is a definitive diff- difference when it comes to the music and sound effects. The XEGS has better sounding effects, and the music is nicer thanks to the pokey. One thing that I did not expect to see different was the main character. On the XEGS game, the elf is rendered in more than one color. That is actually cool, as the character looks better. The enemies, however, are more colors on the 7800 version. Regardless, this is a game that I enjoy on the XEGS. Number two, Gauntlet. This game is a favorite of mine in the arcade. I remember first seeing this machine while I was in college and having a blast with it. The Atari 8-bit version, though, is a bit of a disappointment. I miss the in-game music. The character animation of the enemies is bad. Instead of moving, they appear to jump from spot to spot and the collision detection has an issue as well. It doesn't look bad though, which is unfortunate as it makes it for a bigger disappointment when one plays the game. Sure, the graphics are simplified when compared to the arcade, but they do the trick and both the main characters and the enemies are recognized for what they are. I don't know if this game could have been better if it had more memory, but what we got is not really worth the play. Number three, Zone. Ah yes, good old Battlezone. Not a game that I have played much in the arcade. I actually played the 2600 version much more, so I wasn't as familiar with the vector graphics of this title. I played the 5200 version, which tries to simulate the vector graphics, but keeps certain aspects of the screen represented with standard raster graphics, i.e. the mountains and the radar. Needless to say, when I saw that the XEGS had a version of the game that is different from the 5200, I knew I had to give it a try. This version recreates the look of the vectors for the entire display and looks much more like the arcade original. The overhead display is rendered in a reddish pink unlike the arcade, which draws everything in green. The sound effects are close to the arcade counterpart too, which isn't so difficult to accomplish since the game doesn't have many different sound effects. Personally. This is my favorite version of Battlezone to play on an Atari system. Number four, Gato. Can't say much about this one since I have never tried it out. I'm not huge on simulators, so I'm not very enthusiastic about trying it out. All I see from people who post reviews is that it's boring. I suppose this is to be expected if the game is an accurate simulation of World War II submarine. I'm curious to see what you guys say about the game. Going to the final frontier, gaming. Eugenio. Well, thanks, Eugenio. That was great. You did a wonderful coverage of all the games that we've talked about in the, the past and uh, really appreciate your perspective on it. Thanks for sending us your feedback. Well, that's about the end of the show, everybody. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, thanks for getting together with me, David, and, and reviewing two new games.
1: It, it, was, it was a lot of fun, and thanks to the listeners for listening, for, for taking the time to actually listen to us read all of this stuff. <laughs> Have a
0: good one, everybody. Bye. Goodbye. In our next episode, we have a band of Broderbund brothers. First, we put on our geese with glee to storm the warlord Akuma's castle to save the beautiful princess Mariko in Karateka. Then it's time to dig into a puzzling platformer to find some gold in Load Runner. You can find our latest episodes, news, and information on our website, www.xegs8bit.com. We also have links on there so you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We'd like to thank ComputeHer for giving us permission to use her song Software as our show's theme song. You can visit ComputeHer at ComputeHer.com, that's ComputeHer.com for more information. Also thanks to the folks who contribute to and maintain the Atari Mania database, Wikipedia and other fine results of Google searching. We are part of the Throwback Network, a group of podcasters with one thing in common. We all love old things. Whether it's old video games, old movies, old toys, or simply old stories, the Throwback Network is the place to find them all. Visit throwbacknetwork.net to learn more.